before we uh, turn to our Bibles this morning, I want to ask a question. And um, don't answer the question, but if you know the answer, just raise your hand. If you don't know the answer, don't feel bad. It's not your fault, right? But if you know the answer, think your answer, just know. How many of you know what holiday falls on May 23rd? Don't feel bad if, if you don't know. If you've been fellowshipping here long and you don't know, it's my fault. If you've been fellowshipping somewhere else, I can't speak for anybody else, but it's their fault, right? Well, you should know the answer to this. If, if we were living in the second or third, fourth century, you know, we always look at, back at that early church and go, man, they really had it together, right? Three centuries, they wiped out the Roman Empire as far as evangelizing the whole place, right? If, if we were in the second, third, fourth century, you would be much more acquainted with the holiday that falls on May 20. Now, it falls there this year. It's one of those holidays that falls on different days. But what happens on May 23rd that we celebrate, you would be much more acquainted with that than December 25th. You would be much more in tune to that than December 25th. And again, if you, if you don't know the answer, it's not your fault. You haven't been told. And that's the fault of people like me, right? We're talking about the day of Pentecost. The day when we remember, a couple of you are like, yeah, I think so, maybe, yeah, that was it. If that's what you were thinking, you were right. That day when, as Jesus promised his disciples, the Spirit of God came upon the early church. And um, again, in the, in the modern church, we've done a, a really poor job of explaining that, and more importantly, explaining how that is an essential part of our Christian walk. And, and I'm as guilty as anybody of that. Every year, I've done the same thing. I thought, when we get to the day of Pentecost, I'm really going to talk about it. And it, the day comes and goes, and I missed it. So we're going to do, like, day of Pentecost Advent this year. You know, we have Advent to get into Christmas so that we can't possibly miss it as if we could. But we're going to do the same thing. So we've got, like, six Sundays leading up to the day of Pentecost. And because it's every bit as important, it's wholly appropriate that we do this. And the other thing is going to be a little different this morning. Um, I say this more for our visitors who may be here. If you're, you know, you're regular, you'll notice it's going to be different. Rather than just like take one passage of Scripture and work through it, we're going to be all over the place in Scripture. Because the Holy Spirit is all over the place in Scripture. So that's going to be a little bit different. It may seem just, again... A little bit different. Between now and May 23rd, we're going to talk about what happened on the day of Pentecost. So now, please open your Bibles to the book of Acts, chapter 1. Acts, chapter 1. If you're having a hard time finding it, it's right after John's Gospel. Otherwise, use the table of contents. That may be the most important page in your Bible. I learned that in Bible college, by the way. The table of contents is very important. Luke writes this way. The first account I composed, Theophilus, we're starting in the first verse of the first chapter. The first account I composed, Theophilus, about all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day he was taken up after he had by the Holy Spirit given orders to the apostles whom he had chosen. 
To these he presented himself alive after his suffering by many convincing proofs appearing to them over a period of 40 days and speaking of the things concerning the kingdom of God. And gathering them together, he commanded them not to leave Jerusalem, but to wait for what the Father had promised, which he said, you heard of from me. For John baptized with water, but you shall be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they had come together, they were asking him, saying, Lord, is it at this time you're restoring the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it's not for you to know the times or the epochs that the Father has fixed by his own authority. But you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and even to the remotest parts of the earth. Father, we thank you for your word and ask that as we look to it this morning, both that it is spoken as it is heard, Lord, that your spirit would guide all that we say and do and understand. We're dependent on you, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. So what is this all about that Luke's talking about here uh, in the first chapter? What I'd like to do this morning is take a few minutes and just talk about the whole dynamic of shifting from Matthew, because we've been in Matthew for several months now, and now we're talking about Luke and, and about the book of Acts itself. I want to take just a few minutes to talk about that. But after that, I want to start to lay some groundwork. In other words, we're going to take a good long block of time, about six weeks, to establish an understanding of what this is all about and what it means to us because it is so, so very important. What we're really trying to answer, the question we're trying to answer is, what do we mean when we say the Holy Spirit? I mean, we use that word a lot. We use that expression a lot. Um, putting it another way, who exactly is the Holy Spirit? We want to talk about so. Uh, to that end, let's get started. The book of Acts and Luke as its author. Um, you can probably, you know, you probably figured out that the Gospel of Luke was written by Luke. That's not too uh, revolutionary. Some question it, but it's not a reasonable question. It's pretty well established. Luke wrote it. And of course, Luke writes this as well. He writes the Gospel of Luke. He writes the book of Acts, which, if you think about it for a minute, is really wild. It's, it's wild. We have our Lord, and he's got 12 men following him, one of whom, you know, falls off, so he's out of the equation. And then you've got this larger group of people that number in the hundreds that followed after him, if not daily, almost every day. You've got a lot of people that were there, heard what he said, heard what was going on. They saw the church developing, and, and they're all Jews. They have a really good perspective on what he's talking about. And yet, who writes more of the New Testament than anybody else? A Gentile from Turkey. Yeah, that makes sense. It's wild, right? A lot of what we, what we think about or know about Luke is we, we don't know it as, as solidly as we would like. Uh, we're like 99% sure he was Gentile. There's a small chance he was Jew, but not, not much. We know he's a physician because Paul refers to him as a physician. We think he's probably from northwestern Turkey because that's when he shows up in the story, when Paul's in northwestern Turkey. We do know, Paul tells us, that he was a valued and trusted companion of Paul. And if we accept, as I think, again, most scholarship would, that Luke wrote both Luke and the book of Acts, you know, they're like two volumes of the same set. You got volume one, volume two, you take them together, you've got a complete picture. But it raises the question, why is so much of the New Testament written by a Gentile from Turkey? It just, 
at, at face value doesn't make sense. Well, if you look at the way the two books begin, the answer can be found. Uh, flip back, if you would, to the, the book of Luke, Gospel of Luke, in the very first chapter. And right off the bat, you'll notice the similarity, if you weren't already familiar with this, between the way Acts begins and the way Luke begins. Uh, Luke starts this way, "...inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word have handed them down to us. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it down for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, that you might know the exact truth about the things we've been taught. So you have a lot in common between those two sections, starting with, of course, the name Theophilus. Do we know who that was? No. It could have been one person. That was a proper name in the first century. But it means friend of God, so he could be writing to anyone. He could be using it in kind of a metaphorical sense, writing to anybody that was inclined towards God. But you see the tenor of Luke's writing. Luke is an investigator, right? I wanted you to know there were eyewitnesses. I went and I talked to the eyewitnesses. They handed things down to us, but I investigated everything carefully from the beginning, right? Luke is concerned with history. And one thing Luke doesn't do, for example, we've just got done reading Matthew's Gospel, and it's very clear from Matthew's Gospel that he wants to make the account of Jesus' life understandable to a Jewish audience. So he anchors so much of it in prophecy. John, on the other hand, he's got this broad concept of Jesus as the logos of God, the mind, the reasoning, the person, the character of God in human flesh. John has that perspective. That's not Luke. Luke says, hey, I'm a doctor. I want to look at the case and tell you what's going on, right? Tell me the truth. That's his education. That's his perspective. Luke talks about the conversations that went on between the risen Lord and everybody else. Luke's making sure that we understand this is no ghost we're talking about. He wants it to be known we're talking about the risen Lord, right? I investigated everything. I put it down in consecutive order, one event after another. Now you compare that to what he says over in the book of Acts, right? Again, he returns to the theme of Jesus' resurrection, okay? He talked about him appearing, presenting himself alive after his suffering. This is verse 3 of chapter 1. By many convincing proofs. That is a highly technical term. That's not a term that appears anywhere else in Scripture, and it wasn't even used a lot in everyday language. It just didn't appear in language very much, right? The word that he used is the word dekmirion. And it's a word that means exact account of things. Now, of course, Luke is writing as a Gentile for an empire-wide, Greek-speaking Gentile mind. You use that word, tekmirion, in, in writing something, and everybody's brain is going to go to the same place. Everybody's brain is going to go to a guy by the name of Herodotus, because he's the one that, he didn't coin the word, but he's the one who everybody would attach that word to him. Herodotus, for those of you who are history fans, is of course called the father of history. Because Herodotus is the first guy to say, look, I'm going to write it down the way it happened. I'm not going to have an agenda. I'm going to do my best not to favor one side or the other. 
The Persians didn't exactly agree with that, but that was Herodotus' intention. I want to write the history just as it happened. When Luke uses that word, what's he saying? He's saying, both in my gospel account and here in the book of Acts, that's what I'm doing. I'm doing my level best to lay things out for you just as they, as, as they happen. And when he used that phrase to investigate everything carefully back in his gospel, that's a word that means literally to follow along. So it's, it's very much like the image we all have of you know, Sherlock Holmes with the magnifying glass. You know, walking, walking along the trail, looking for clues. That's how Luke describes himself. I'm an historian. I investigate things carefully, and I'm not coming from any particular perspective, whether Jew or Gentile. I just want the facts written down. So that's the foundation that Luke builds, that Jesus indeed rose from the dead. It's just solid history. And now we're going to talk about what happens going forward. In verse 5, he uses the, the, the account of John the Baptist as kind of a marker. Something started then. We're talking about the same thing. Verse 6 and 7 are great because that's where the human part of it comes in. He establishes that Jesus rose from the dead. He has ascended to the Father. Now, in Matthew's account, we had him ascending to the Father, going north to Galilee. Now we have him coming back to Jerusalem. I'm sorry, in uh, Matthew's account, he went to Galilee gave the great commission we talked about last week. Now he's come back to Jerusalem, ascended to the Father, and the question is, now what? Jesus is gone. What are we going to do? And six and seven, the disciples do what we do. They articulate their ideas. Hey, Lord, is this, or is this the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? And Jesus says, no. That's not your concern. Here's your concern. I'm going to leave. I'm going to be gone. Here's your concern. You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon me, and you shall be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, all Samaria, the uttermost parts. See, that answered the question they should have been asking. When it became evident that Jesus was alive, he rose from the dead, their question was, great, now we get the kingdom of Israel. But Jesus had just gotten done telling them, you're going to be witnesses to the uttermost parts of the earth. How is that supposed to happen? That should have been the question they were asking. How are we going to do that? You know, no planes, trains, automobiles, no electronic medium. How are we going to do it? Well, the answer is, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you. And you shall go to the very ends of the earth. Now, that reality that they're going to go to the very ends of the earth, that needed to raise some real questions for them. Um, again, how? The answer was, well, the Holy Spirit. So that raises the question, who is that? When we say the Holy Spirit, who are we talking about? When we say the Holy Spirit, who are we talking about? The answer is one word, God. Not Part of God, not an image or a reflection of God, but God. Now, let's be honest. If I say the Father is God, we go, cool. I can process that. When we say Jesus is God, that may be a little bit harder, but we go, yeah, that's cool. I can process that. But when we say the Holy Spirit is 
God, period, end of sentence, how do we react? Hmm. A little harder to process that one. Isn't he just like part of God showing up? Or the way God does things? No. He is God. How do we know that? How do we know the Holy Spirit is God? Well, look at his names, for example. The Holy Spirit is referred to as, in Scripture, the Spirit of God. Genesis chapter 1, verse 2. The Spirit of God moved upon the face of the water. The Spirit of God. He's called that 26 different times in Scripture. Identified, absolutely, with the character of God. He's called the Spirit of Christ. Romans 8, 9. If anyone does not have the Spirit of Christ, he doesn't belong to him. So he's associated, absolutely, with the person of Christ. But most importantly, for our understanding of who he is, he is called the Holy Spirit. That's it. Ephesians 4.30. And we're going to talk a lot about Ephesians 4.30. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. It's a huge verse of Scripture. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God. When we say He is the Holy Spirit, we're saying He's God. Because nobody else is holy but God. Now, you and I, as the saints of God, that's how the New Testament refers to us, and that's the exact same word. Saint is just an old translation of the same word. We are saints. But how do we get there? We are saints by calling. We are saints by attribution. God has attributed His holiness to us. Called to be saints, called as saints. We're always described that way. I am not, I am a saint, by the way, because God's called me one, but I'm not a saint by my nature. If you have any doubt about that at all, ask her. Okay? It's not born in my nature. I wasn't created a saint. In fact, you can't be created a saint because that makes you a created being. The Holy Spirit is holy by His nature. That raises the question, well, what exactly do you mean by holy? We normally define that word as saying separate. That's not an adequate definition because it's circular. Okay, he's holy because he's separate. Well, what makes him separate? He's holy, right? When you hear the word holiness, we are holy by separation because God has declared us to be one separate from the world, but also separate to him. If you're just separated from the world, but you're not separated to him, you're not holy. The only way we get holiness is separation to Him, identification to Him. We're going to talk a whole lot more about that. But the Holy Spirit is holy by nature. The nature of His being is holy. Well, what is holiness? It is uniqueness. No one else in that category. That's not true of us. There's a whole bunch of us human beings running around. Right? God, God is unique. And he is complete. There is no lack in him. He didn't create us because he needed us. But in creating us, we need him. Now you may think, well, we're like Adam and Eve, were they like holy before the fall? No. Because they were not complete. They needed him. They could not exist without him. So anything we have of holiness is that attributed holiness. He's declared us to be holy. But He is holy by nature. And the Holy Spirit is holy by nature. As 
contrasted with us. Another way we know the Holy Spirit is God is by looking at his actions. Job 33, 4, the Spirit of God has made me. That's a description of God's work. The breath of the Almighty gives me life. By a pleasant coincidence, in Hebrew, spirit and breath are the same. Identification with God. Psalm 139, start in verse 7. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend to heaven, you're there. If I make my bed in Sheol, behold, you're there. If I take the wings of the dawn, if I dwell in the remotest part of the sea, even there your right hand will lead me, your hand will lay hold of me. Where can I go from your spirit? The spirit is omnipresent everywhere. That's a God thing. So we establish pretty easily that the Holy Spirit is God. The next one's the headbender. The Holy Spirit is also a person. The Holy Spirit is also a person. And this is where it gets really interesting, because when we try to explain the Holy Spirit, we try to explain God at all, we normally resort to analogies. And there have been some really fascinating analogies trying to describe the Holy Spirit via analogy. One of them is electricity. Sounds good to start with. It's really, really powerful. It's really, really invisible. But you come in contact with it and you know it. Right? Bam! Right? Yeah. But electricity is not personal. We'll talk about that. You're gonna, you younger folks are not going to believe this. But how many of you are old enough to remember when Star Wars first came out? And there was all that discussion in the church is like the force, an analogy for the Holy Spirit? Are you out of your mind? No, no. Holy Spirit is personal. Let's go back to that Ephesians 4.30 passage. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit by whom you were sealed for the day of redemption. What does that tell us about the Holy Spirit? Do not grieve the Holy Spirit. That the Holy Spirit is capable of being grieved. The Holy Spirit is capable of an emotional response. There goes electricity. I mean, you do something boneheaded. I remember my first real encounter with electricity. Back before our lawnmowers and edgers had safe ways of shutting themselves off, we had this little flapper valve on top of, on the, top of the wide open exposed motor, and you just flicked it and it shorted out the spark plug and killed it, right? Well, I got this brilliant idea one day. What would happen if instead of shorting it out, I just disconnected it? And I opened up my eyes about six feet away from the edger. Like, whoa, that was smart. I had a very experiential knowledge of the power of electricity. Stood there for several minutes before I could function. Um, but it's not like the lawnmower or, or the electricity in the lawnmower said, John, I'm really sorry that happened to you. I'm really sorry you were so stupid. No, there's no emotive connection there at all. The Holy Spirit, capable of emotive response. Do not grieve the Holy Spirit, means at least by implication, the Holy Spirit can be grieved. It's personal, right? How about this one? Like I said, this is really head-bending stuff if you let it soak in. Romans 8.27, He who searches the hearts knows what the mind of the Spirit is, because He intercedes for the saints according to the will of God. The Spirit has a mind. 
Now, that's not referring to the physical brain matter of, of a brain. No, that is referring to capacity. And the word that is used there is phronima. Phronima. I was amazed to find out there's even a Wikipedia article on phronema. That's not where I got my information, just, you know, but I just, I did come across it. It's fascinating. Phronema, that's that part of the mind that has to do with judgment, insight, reason, the capacity to process things, make choices, evaluate consequences, a foreign concept to teenagers. Um, it's that part of our brain that thinks things through. The Holy Spirit can do that and does. Makes choices. Add to that 1 Corinthians 12 where Paul's talking about spiritual gifts. Paul says this, but one and the same Spirit works all these things distributing, distributing, sorry, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. And the word that's used there is vuleme. It means to take counsel. You would normally use it if you have a group of people getting together and discussing things, like what are we going to do next? What are our options? It refers to the discussion part of the decision-making process. This is to suggest the Holy Spirit talks to himself. No, what it suggests is that the Holy Spirit thinks things through, has reasoning processes, deliberation. And in that same verse, it says he distributes. That means to, to divide things. Like you sit with your family and you divide up the pizza and you get one piece and you, you look really hungry, I'll give you two. So all of these thought processes, from the very beginning, what's the situation? What are the options? What are the resources? How are we going to handle it? What are the consequences of choice A? What are the consequences of choice B? On the, and then we're going to do this. The Holy Spirit can be demonstrated to do all of those through Scripture. What does that prove to us? The Holy Spirit is person, not an it. Which is why when the Holy Spirit is referred to in Scripture, the masculine pronoun is used. There is nothing in Scripture ever that indicates the Holy Spirit has gender. But the masculine pronoun is used because the neuter pronoun indicates a lack of personhood. The Holy Spirit is person. All of the options of personhood are found in the Holy Spirit. So we've seen that he's God. We've seen that he has personality, is person. Let's talk about his work, and we'll just do this quickly because we've already touched on a lot of this stuff. The Holy Spirit was an active participant in creation. He sustains human life. He seals us for the day of redemption. He distributes gifts to the church. John chapter 3, Jesus made it very clear the Holy Spirit is the agent of regeneration. We must be born of the Spirit. He is the agent of ongoing renewal in our lives. Titus 3, 5. He saved us not on the basis of deeds which we have done in righteousness, but according to His mercy by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit active in our lives continually to do the work of regeneration. The Holy Spirit convicts of sin, of righteousness, of judgment, John 16, 8. So from the very moment of conviction, when I realized I was in big trouble because I was a sinner, 
and I needed help. That was the work of the Holy Spirit. To the moment I came to understand what God had to offer me and the provision of God through the cross, and I accepted His provision for me, and that long, arduous project, process of regeneration, the working out of the Holy Spirit was there the whole, is there the whole time, never stops working. John 1.27, or 1 John 1.27, the Spirit of God teaches us. So all of this, and just touch the surface this morning, all of this, to demonstrate what? That the Holy Spirit is God. His person is active in our lives. Now, how do we factor all of that into one God, three persons? Well, that's the challenge that we cannot adequately answer. But Scripture demonstrates it to be true. And what it means is this. This is, this is the application of all that. Jesus said this in John chapter 14, verse 16 and 17. I will ask the Father, and He will give you another helper. We are really going to talk about that word. He will give you another helper. He's talking about the Holy Spirit. That He may be with you forever. That is the Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive. You want a really good definition of what is and what is not a Christian? You ever wonder what the exact definition of who is and who is not a Christian? It's right here. Someone indwelt by the Spirit of God is a Christian. All the doctrinal stuff is secondary. The doctrinal stuff just determines whether or not you have a properly educated Christian. But the identity of being a Christian is bound up in one truth. Are we indwelt by the Spirit of God? The Spirit of truth whom the world cannot receive, but, and because it does not see Him or know Him, but you know Him because He abides in, with you and will be in you. Another word we're going to talk about a lot, the Holy Spirit. His abiding presence, what that means. So you connect what Jesus says here what Jesus said in Matthew 28 about going into all the world. What he said in Acts 1.8, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. You shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and the remotest part of the earth. A proper understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives just begins to form. And that's where we're at right now. That my intent this morning, for those that know this stuff, is to bring it back to your remembrance. For those that, that haven't thought it through or haven't encountered this stuff, is just to kind of open a window and, and let a breeze blow through with the incredible truth of who the Holy Spirit is. Because a proper understanding of the work of the Holy Spirit in our lives, both individually and collectively as His church, is essential to a healthy, productive Christian life. That is what we're going to build toward over these next few weeks. That's our goal. And I'll finish with this. Alex, if you can bring this up. This is a statement which, at face value, you go, I'm not sure I can believe that. It's from Ignatius, who was a saint who um, was martyred right around the year 100, 100, 140, he was, he was martyred. He said this, The grace of the Spirit brings the machinery of redemption into vital connection with the individual soul. Apart from the Spirit, the cross stands inert. 
a vast machine at rest. Spend your week thinking about that. Father, I thank you for your word this morning. And I know, Father, we're just kind of getting started. And it's, it, in a way, it's kind of hard to go, well, what do I take from this, Father? If we can simply take from this, these scriptures this morning, the understanding that we have really got to open our minds and our hearts to who your spirit is, who the Holy Spirit is, and the work he would do in our lives. Father, the truths, the doctrinal truths of your word are powerful. They're life-changing. They are indeed truth. But Father, if we would connect with you, if we would truly, truly know, Father, what it is to be born again, to live a resurrected life, to walk in the newness of life. Father, we're going to have to come to the place where the Holy Spirit has free, unshackled reign and, and, and movement in our lives, Lord. Father, we want to be people who embrace the abiding presence of your Spirit. There's so much there, Father, for us to understand. And we're just starting this moment. But I pray this morning, we pray this morning, that that work will start in our hearts and minds, maybe for the first time, maybe a fresh and anew. It's been there a long time, Lord. But that will start in our hearts and minds. In Jesus' name, amen.